0: You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry
1: Zimmerman. The beginning of the upcoming school year is fast approaching. And though many students may be trying their hardest to not think about the coming school year, that's almost impossible for countless parents across the state who see another school year of uncertainty lying ahead.
0: One thing that is still uncertain at this time is whether or not students will be required to wear face coverings in school. At the beginning of July, state health officials announced the end of their mask requirements in school settings. But just days after that, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released guidance that recommended any unvaccinated students or staff still wear masks in schools.
1: Yesenia Robles is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado, and she's been covering the lead-up to the school year and the latest COVID guidance as it relates to schools. Yesenia, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So let's begin with the latest guidance. As I mentioned before, federal and state guidance aren't exactly congruent at this time, but we've seen that throughout the pandemic. Give us a sense of the situation that parents and school officials are in right now. Are they waiting for more guidance? And if so, from whom?
2: Parents, you know, as school is approaching, are hoping to know what will happen during the school year, if their children will have to wear masks or not. For some parents, it might make a difference about what they choose to do with their children as far as going in person or not. Some school districts do have online options still that parents could take advantage of. School officials are facing pressure from these parents who want to know. Um, A lot of parents have been very vocal on both sides, wanting masks and also not wanting children to be forced to wear masks. And then the school districts have heard from the state, heard from the federal government, and now it sounds like they might be waiting for more guidance from the state, from Colorado Department of Public Health, but it's not confirmed whether that guidance will be coming or not. In the meantime, the school districts are also closely watching what happens with COVID numbers now that Delta is starting to have an impact on on cases here in Colorado and across the country.
1: What have you heard from local public health agencies? Have they weighed in on whether or not students should wear masks?
2: Yes, I talked to some officials from local public health agencies, and they believe that schools should absolutely require masks for all students and staff who aren't vaccinated. They are concerned in particular about the Delta variant and about not having quite as much information about that strain or that variant uh, um, as compared to the COVID which we knew was not significantly impacting children um, but officials from local public health agencies say they just aren't quite sure they have enough information to say that the same will be true of Delta.
1: Well, it's not surprising that health experts are expressing a lot of caution, especially with this Delta variant. Um, But it's kind of a different story when it comes to educators and parents of students who are going back into the schools. Give us a kind of sense of the overall conversation surrounding masks in schools. Not always a popular idea. Some say they inhibit learning. Uh, What have you found in your reporting?
2: None of the experts I've talked to say they inhibit learning or anything else. It's mostly parents who believe it's an inconvenience for their children. Some parents believe that part of learning is being able to communicate and that there is something lost when you can't see someone's complete facial expressions. But local public health experts say that that's a small concern compared to being sick with something we don't know a lot about yet. The other thing school districts might be considering is, you know, wanting to get kids back in to have school as close to normal as possible. That's a term that school district officials have used in communications. The school district officials didn't want to talk to us for this story. They just say they're working with public health experts and waiting to finalize their plans for the fall. So that's kind of where where they're at.
1: At this moment, vaccines haven't been approved for use in younger people, but a portion of teenage Coloradans have begun to receive the vaccine. Is that having an impact?
2: Yeah, local public health experts I talked to did um, mention that the vaccines are something that could eventually help do away with masks. But they uh, cautioned that you know, w- when children aren't vaccinated, you know, younger children, in this case, there's just too many people who aren't vaccinated congregating within schools. And I think that's that's of concern to them. While there are um, good rates of older students getting vaccinated, it does feel like it's not at the point where officials are comfortable yet, at least the public health officials. Um, and we're, so close to the start of the school year that if a student were to start getting a vaccine right now, they would not be fully immunized before the start of the school year just yet.
1: Yesenia Robles is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. You can find a link to her reporting on this at our website, KUNC.org. Yesenia, thanks for reporting on this.
2: Thank you.
0: New data from the state health department shows that over 95 percent of the nearly 10,000 people who've been hospitalized with COVID-19 since mid-January of this year were not vaccinated. Cases of coronavirus are rising both nationally and in Colorado, particularly in areas with low vaccination rates. Statewide, about 62 percent of eligible Coloradans have been fully vaccinated.
1: For many, this summer has been about getting back to pre-pandemic life with activities like cookouts and vacations. But it's not that simple for those with compromised immune systems. And the region's low vaccination rates are not helping either. Maggie Mullen has more for KUNC.
3: The day that Kate Sherrod got vaccinated against COVID-19 was an emotional one.
4: Because it was my first time around strangers in like a year.
3: Sherrod is immunocompromised, which limits her ability to fight off infections. So she was stuck at home during the first year of the pandemic. It also meant she was in one of the early priority groups for the vaccine. And after the first shot in March, Sherrod let herself imagine some of the things she'd do once she hit full immunity.
4: And I had been looking forward to going to the symphony. Uh, There's a great record store here in town that I've never been to. You know, there's, a, there's an Expedition League baseball team here. I mean, all sorts of things. Sherrod
3: lives in Casper, Wyoming. And when she started to reemerge after her second shot, it wasn't as safe as she had hoped.
4: I noticed that even before uh, vaccinations were available to the general public, Um, I was seeing people that were acting like it was all over.
3: She saw very few people wearing masks, and only about 33 percent of her community have gotten vaccinated, which means Sherrod can't depend on herd immunity for protection.
4: It's infuriating because there are perfectly ordinary things I could be doing safely still if If other people were even remotely considerate.
3: With a few exceptions, a lot of the region's vaccination rates hover around 40 percent. That makes life difficult for people with an autoimmune disease like Sherrod. The drugs she takes for it mean that her immune system may not do its job when it encounters the vaccine. Evan Crump is a pharmacist in Laramie.
5: The way, you know, a traditional vaccine works, it it has a little bit of that disease and it goes into the body. And so a healthy immune system sees that foreign object uh, and starts to build antibodies towards them to fight that off to protect our body.
3: It's a little different with mRNA vaccines like the Moderna or Pfizer. Crump says here's one way to think about it.
5: They kind of, instead of bringing a bit of the disease in, they bring in a picture of what the the immune system needs to watch out for. The body learns that and then starts to make antibodies.
3: But if your immune system isn't working properly, you may not develop those antibodies. This is potentially the case for at least 10 million Americans who have a compromised immune system, like people with organ transplants, cancer patients, and those living with HIV.
5: There's so many other you know, disease states out there where maybe they get some response, but they're not getting full response from the COVID vaccine, and they're just, they're so vulnerable.
3: According to AARP, most doctors treating patients with these conditions are still recommending they get a coronavirus vaccine, since some protection is better than none. Mei Chu is with the Colorado School of Public Health. She says after getting vaccinated, that part of the population may want to take other precautions, like staying home and masking up when you leave. As for those with healthy immune systems, Chu says they can help too by getting vaccinated.
4: We have personal responsibility to make sure they're safe.
3: Kate Sherrod would like to see more of her community get vaccinated, but she's not counting on it.
4: There's a lot of people out there like me. This question is hanging over our heads. You know, did the vaccine help or or was it? a false hope. And we're not going to know until some research is done.
3: Currently, researchers at Johns Hopkins Medicine and NYU Langone Health are studying the vaccine responses of patients with suppressed immune systems. That could give someone like Sherrod better answers. In the meantime, she's finding ways to soak up summer while staying safe, like picnics on Casper Mountain with her sister and tending to her vegetable garden. She's even managed to make it to a baseball game.
4: That's outdoors, and the stadium is way bigger than the crowds.
3: Which makes it easier to sit back and enjoy the game. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Maggie Mullen.
1: KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find this and other stories at kunc.org.
0: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. In a vote Monday night, Denver city council okayed the expansion of a non-police response program by voting to increase funding by $1 million.
1: It's called the STAR Mobile Unit, short for Support Team Assisted Response. KUNC's mental health reporter Lee Patterson joins us now for more on the rise of these crisis response alternatives following last summer's protests. Hi, Lee. Hey there. The Star Mobile unit launched last June, right in the middle of protests against police violence. Bring us up to speed. What's happened since then?
6: Yeah, so the program did launch last summer, but it had actually been in the works for several years. There were a bunch of different groups involved, including Denver's police chief, who was a big backer. Today, what the project looks like is two people. There's a mental health worker and a paramedic and they're driving around in this really nondescript white van uh, responding to low level 911 calls coming in. These are calls that would otherwise probably have gone to police. So they're dealing with issues like trespassing related to homelessness. That's pretty common. People dealing with substance use or self-harm. You know, sometimes they're just helping someone get back on their meds. So in most of these situations, there's not much of a criminal or violent element. In the first year, the Star Van has responded to hundreds and hundreds of calls. And they say they haven't had to request police backup at all.
1: Well, you've been reporting on this project since it launched. The Starvan's gotten a lot of media attention from outlets around the country. What hole is this service filling?
6: That's right. There have been a lot of stories done about this program. and I think part of what's going on is that people are just hungry for solutions to problems related to policing and there's a lot of agreement about this particular problem that police have become the de facto first responders when someone is in a mental health crisis and they don't always have the skills to deal with these situations and that their presence can actually be really really upsetting sometimes for people and of course there's a lot of agreement that jail is not a good place for someone who is in crisis or struggling with a mental illness But we do know from anecdotes and from research that people in crisis are interacting with the criminal justice system all the time. One in four people with mental disorders have been arrested. The last time I checked in with uh, the Boulder County Jail, around 75% of inmates had some sort of mental health diagnosis. And for 17%, it's quite severe. So the problem is real. The STAR mobile unit is one solution. There are a couple other cities that are looking to adopt it. Uh, Aurora is funding a pilot program that's going to launch soon. Lakewood is uh, considering something similar as well, um, along with, the, with several other cities. But the model is not necessarily perfect. Some groups that were initially involved in the STAR program, uh, the Denver Alliance for Street Health Response, for example, they have expressed concern that the program now is not the original vision and doesn't reflect what community members are asking for. Racial and ethnic makeup of the staff doesn't necessarily reflect the community it serves. People want the program to be culturally responsive and so maybe include responders who have shared the life experiences of mental health struggles. So the STAR mobile van is certainly a solution that's gotten a lot of attention. That doesn't mean it's the cure-all.
1: Now, this is one, as you mentioned, solution and one just example of a, a crisis response alternative, uh, the star van. What else is out there?
6: So the way I think about this is that there's a continuum of crisis responses relative to the amount of police involvement. So the Star Mobile unit, there's no police presence. More on the middle of the continuum, meaning some police involvement, that's where co-responder programs fall. So... There are many different configurations out there, but basically law enforcement are paired up with clinicians to respond to behavioral health calls. Sometimes they're all in one vehicle, sometimes separate, sometimes they're plain clothes, sometimes they're uniform. But let's say a 911 call comes in, somebody's threatening suicide, the co-responder team could be dispatched, the officer could de-escalate, keep the clinician safe, perhaps deal with the firearm if there is one. While the clinician assesses and stabilizes the individual, maybe they get in touch with family members or hook the person up with more long-term crisis services, the end goal generally for these co-responders are to avoid arresting people and avoid putting them in the hospital.
7: Mm.
1: Well, the question on my mind, Lee, is do these programs work?
6: They're new, but they're promising. That's basically what a recent state evaluation found. These teams have reported success over time in diverting people away from jail time and mental health holds and towards services. And these programs are becoming more and more common very quickly. A few years ago, there were maybe a dozen. Recently, the state agency that funds this stuff had so many funding requests that they weren't able to fill them all. There are challenges, of course, Lots of communities are having trouble hiring clinicians to staff these teams. Funding, of course, is an issue. Many co-responder teams are only available sometimes, not 24-7. Some programs, like the one in Summit County, I'm doing some reporting on that program right now, they are expanding with the help of local funding.
1: In thinking about recent calls to defund the police, co-responder programs do represent continued police involvement in crisis and mental health calls. Has this issue come up as these programs have expanded?
6: Yes. So co-responder programs are definitely a tweak to the system, not a transformation. That was one of the criticisms that came up during committee hearings this past legislative session on a bill to expand funding, essentially that this model is still police centric. A councilwoman from Aurora made the point asking why we're keeping this issue in police hands, especially after racial justice protests this summer. And I would just add that, you know, broadly, police are still responding to many, many, many mental health calls. This is still a big part of the job and likely will be for a while.
1: That's KUNC's mental health reporter, Lee Patterson. Thanks, Lee. You're welcome. A new state law banning the use of American Indian mascots is prompting some schools to have discussions about what a nickname or a mascot should represent. The effective date for schools to rebrand is June 1st, 2022. And while many are beginning to have community-wide conversations about all this, critics of Senate Bill 116 are resisting the change. Others are threatening to sue.
0: For more on this new state law and how school districts are reacting, we're joined by reporter Sue McMillan, who wrote about this for The Colorado Sun. Sue, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me, Erin. Let's start with what this new law does. It
7: directs school districts to eliminate any American Indian mascots or nicknames or logos by June 2022.
0: So how are school districts responding to the new law?
7: Well, there's a variety of change. A couple, um, Loveland had two schools. They changed it last year. Cheyenne Mountain High School changed it early this year before the law was passed. Two other districts, Eaton and Levita, decided to start making changes last year because they were in the midst of building projects. And they were like, you know, we don't want to put this our logos or things on a new building if we're going to have to take them off so they started the change process last year as well a few others have started to make change there's a little bit of been quite a bit of discussion actually over what a mascot should mean and what do the words mean for example the word warrior which is a more generic term can refer to spartans vikings native americans and for younger people you know video game characters anime characters Um, warrior actually has a lot of different connotations. So some of them are thinking they'll keep the warrior nickname, but change some of the mascots, logos, imagery, and they're having a lot of discussions about how to go about doing that.
0: In your piece for The Sun, you focused on Lamar. Tell us more about what's going on there.
7: Well, Lamar actually had a community meeting last week, which was why they became a little bit more of the focus because it was a chance to talk to a lot of people in the community about what this means. Their mascot or um, nickname is Savages, and it's very ingrained throughout the community. Their Savage Avenue leads to the high school. The road has a median in the block by the high school that has a lot of sculptures. That were done as senior class projects, and most of them are Native American related. So there's a lot of pieces to this that the community really identifies with, and they feel like they're being respectful. That it means, you know, we're tough, we're resilient. But of course, you know, there's a lot of Native American groups, tribes, organizations that don't think that's true. They think that that is a derogatory name, and of course, in the past. Lamar had a much more cartoonish mascot to go with it, you know, sort of the stereotypical Indian. Now it's the artwork is much different. It's more respectful. So, you know, it has already changed over time, but they want to keep that name. The Board of Education supports keeping the Savage nickname and whatever of the artwork that they can maintain but they will not join in the lawsuit that is expected to be filed sometime this summer by the Native American Guardians Association.
0: Yeah, tell us a little bit more about the lawsuit and about the organization that's behind it.
7: So the Native American Guardians Association was formed as a nonprofit in North Dakota in 2017, in part to take up this fight against local school boards and states and cities trying to, and even national teams, sports teams, trying to get rid of the Native American mascots. And they feel like that some of their history is being erased. They've been somewhat controversial. There's been accusations that they're not, you know, they're they're not Native American. On their website, they say most of their leadership is. Um, they have say that there's more than one voice for Native Americans. So they are the voice that's saying, you know, if people can be respectful with our imagery, such as, you know, Arapahoe High School and Strasburg School Districts had Native Americans design and do their artwork, that that that's good, that's positive, that's keeping the Native American history in the public eye, which they believe should be done. They have prepared a lawsuit to try to overturn Colorado's new law and expect to file that this summer.
0: All of this has me curious about the opposition to the new law. It just seems like there's this huge cultural shift underway all over the country, not just here in Colorado, certainly even. I'm wondering what the people you spoke with who intend to fight the new law say about why they're opposed to it. The main
7: arguments are that they think that by the state taking this action, that they're losing local control, which of course is a really big deal for Colorado school districts. They also believe that it's their right to decide whether something is derogatory or not. Uh, the state has not provided any money for them to make changes. And in some cases, the Montrose School District, for example, said that it, they expect it will cost at least a half a million to re- refinish, replace gym floors, Other imagery. There's, you know, Native American sculptures, there's Native American like heads carved into granite in some districts. There's a lot of this imagery around that are part of the buildings that will be expensive for them to get rid of.
0: What is the response from supporters and from lawmakers who wrote the bill?
7: Well, some of the lawmakers are saying that best grants, which are done by the Department of Education, will be available for this, although best grants, their top priority is for safety. So that's like school construction funding, right? Right. It's a, it's a competitive grant thing. So, you know, there's that. They're also trying to see if they can seek. And I believe the governor's office, um, I don't know a lot about this, but may also be trying to see if there's some other funding things for some of these districts to help them out. Because, of course, schools and especially the smaller rural districts don't have a lot of extra money for this.
0: Sue McMillan is a freelance reporter and editor based in Canyon City. You'll find a link to her piece in the Colorado Sun at our website, KUNC.org. Sue, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me, Erin
1: that's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
0: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer.
1: Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.